have um, audio, so we'll go with that. We're here to fellowship tonight with God and His Word. We are looking in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 on what is the result of the Spirit of God working in us, the results of the Spirit of God working in us, and tonight on household, on our household. And so um, entire ministries are dedicated to what we're talking about tonight, but I rarely hear it out of uh, the nature of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual life. That's, see, that's mysticism stuff. That's feel-good stuff. That's not the practical nuts and bolts of how to run a household, raise children, uh, deal with your husband or wife, and so forth. But um, that's exactly what God's design would be, is that we would go from uh, the work of the Spirit in us in our relationship with God directly to our relationships with people in our household. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we indeed are availing ourselves of the work of the Spirit, and uh, I'll open us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the eternal life we're enjoying right now, for your Son came to give us life and that abundantly, and we do have abundant life because of our eternal Savior. Thank you that he lives ever to make intercession for us, and he's at your right hand, glorified, doing that in this very moment. We also also want to thank you for the Holy Spirit. By your eternal design, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, has come to abide in us, in each of our hearts, to make us individually and collectively, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we, uh, we often take this work for granted. We don't think about it um, as your word seems to portray it as such a special and high privilege. But we ask that tonight we would learn more about the work of your spirit in us and we become more and more mindful of our responsibility because of our great privilege. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 while I try to uh, figure out my equipment tonight. It just, it gets backwards, it gets confused sometimes. (laughs) No, it's good, we got it, okay. The work of the Holy Spirit and the believer's experience was um, last Wednesday, and tonight it's the work of the Holy Spirit in, our, in the household. Why do I say so? Because if you look into um, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 22, he launches right out of uh, the relationship we have with God and our prayer life to submission to one another in verse 21, and then to wives, right away to wives, and uh, then husbands, then children, then fathers, then slaves, then masters. It's always the subordinate and then the superior in terms of authority. It is. That's what he's doing. He's saying headship and bodyship, headship and bodyship, or actually body first and then head. And um, because of the nature of submission and authority structures, and let's get that out of the way right now. Let's just talk about that and think that through together for just a minute. Can you think of a more uh, problematic thing in life than authority? Is there anything that causes more trouble in life, in your life, in your experience, and those of your loved ones, than the problem of authority? Let me, expl- let me explain what I mean. Nobody can decide for you but you. Nobody has the authority in your life to make your choices but you. And how many of your choices have turned out badly? Right? And so self-government is a huge problem. Just for one example, I'm not saying all your suffering is because you have made bad choices. I'm saying the consequences that you've had in life from bad choices are from bad choices. And, you know, live with the results of the wisdom that you've gotten from that. But that's a, that's a problem of authority, self-government. It's so much easier if somebody else who knows better just, tell, just does it for us, just makes us do the right thing. And then we won't have any problems. Lock me away. Like put a, put a lock on the refrigerator and don't tell me what the combination is, and let the person with the perfect portions come out, and uh, let me only have what I need to have, and then I won't uh, overeat. Self-government solved. Somebody else governed the, the, the giving of the food, the rationing of the food. Well, that's basically economics, what you eat. 
we'd be better off, so much better off if somebody would be in charge of the refrigerator or the thermostat or whatever else. I mean, this is authority. Who has the right to decide what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to, what you're going to do with your life? Primarily you, and then we have authority structures that God has designed over us for various aspects of life. Everybody was born to parents, and that either went well or poorly, but God had a design for that to be two people complementing one another in their design as husband and wife to, to spend their effort and energy to raise and disciple uh, you as a child. And it's a great plan. It's a great program. It's a great design, except that we're broken and fallen and sinful. And so how much trouble happens because of parents shirking their responsibility for their children? How much trouble happens from children that will not submit to duly constituted authority? See, authority is everywhere the problem of our lives. In Genesis chapter 3, that we're told part of the curse the woman is going to endure is that her desire will be for her husband. And that word for desire is used in Genesis chapter 4 for sin crouching at the door. Its desire is for you like it's a lion that wants to eat you. I don't think this means in Genesis 3.16 that a woman who will suffer her, her childbirth will be multiplied in terms of its suffering. I don't think that, uh, and your, but your desire will be for your husband is a reference to uh, he's going to be mean to you, but you're going to want to be around him. I don't think that's what that means. I think it initializes the battle of the sexes, the war that exists between uh, men and women that should be a dance. There's a book that came out 20 years ago, our, How Our Dance Turned to Death. And it's, it's the fall. It's the broken thing that happened when a beautiful thing was designed by God for complementary, not interchangeable roles, but complementary roles. But then sin came in, and men with their authority are now, the husband with his authority is now a broken leader. And a wife with her responsibility to submit is now a broken responder. And that brokenness is everywhere. So I'm just saying all the authority structures, I mean, that's the problem with your civilization, right? It's men. Toxic masculinity. What do we mean by that? Well, what they mean is we don't want to submit to God and his way of doing things because that would involve authority and I would have to submit to somebody over me and I'm not doing that, right? Something deep inside me says that's wrong. I should be able to, to do whatever I want and no one should tell me not to except that God knows we need authority. And we don't want to submit to authority. It's just our sin. So I want to say this is an area of life that touches you and me every day in many different ways. The only problem with work are the other people there. And I mean your coworkers, your subordinates, you're an authority over them in some sense. And your boss. That's the only thing wrong with work. If it weren't for those people, it'd be awesome. Unless you work in, in the fields and you're the boss, and you have to fight the field. And the only problem is bacteria that's in the ground already. The only problem is the flooding that happens that destroys the crops. So the only problem is the, is the drought or the weather. See, it's all, it's all the fall. But what we're doing in Ephesians chapter 5, there's my introduction. Hopefully, we've surfaced a problem. <laughs> now we're going to solve it. The solution to that for, for Christians in terms of the problems that we have with our sinfulness when we rub up against authority, and either the authority is sinful or I'm sinful in my failure to submit to it, the, the solution is the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you, and He wants to fill you with the Word of Christ. He wants the Word of Christ to richly dwell within you. And when you're saturated with the Word, Colossians 3.16, which is to be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, all those authority structures fall into place. They're all restored. And I'm not saying that you won't have the problems of sin. I'm saying that the solution to those problems is the walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, the power the Holy Spirit provides through his word. And so this is where sort of the, the discussion on Christian spirituality uh, gets to its nuts and bolts. So let's get to our passage in Ephesians 5.18. We'll just by way of review, do not be drunk with wine is the initial command, but be filled by the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit with the result of that main verb that governs everything. Now listen, 518 is the main verb, be filled by the Spirit. It's a finite verb, meaning a main verb. That's really important in Greek. Everything from 518 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9 is governed by that verb, be filled by the Spirit, which means now how I function as a wife or a husband, a children or a child or a, or a parent, a slave or a master, a man, a labor or management, 
every relationship of these authority structures is now to be governed by my spiritual life. See, what is provided here is a blessing. It's a treasure, but it's not accessible to the world. The, the, the broken, fallen, sinful man without the Spirit of God, the mere man, as Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 3, has no access to what we're talking about. This is a fantastic and phenomenal arrangement, but it's, it's going to have problems too because who walks perfectly by the Spirit? <laughs> who never says something in anger? that then can't be unsaid and the hurt can't be unhurt despite the fact that you repent, you apologize, the grenade has gone off. Their wound is going to have to take time to heal. So we still, even though we have the spirit, we still have these problems, but the work of the spirit is supposed to result in something that I do, that I say what I say to you from God's word, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that I'm giving you by what I communicate an application of the thinking of Jesus Christ. See, if, if I'm filled by the Spirit with the word of Christ, then I'm able to say the things of the word of Christ. And they're a blessing. They're not a curse. See, and I'm, I'm living out by what I say this work of the Spirit in me. It's a result participle. In verse 20, with the result that you sing and make, I'm sorry, the second half of verse 19, that you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. And verse 20, with the result that you give thanks at all times for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. A casual reading of verse uh, 20 needs to be replaced with a careful reading of verse 20. That is a mouthful. There is a huge challenge. This is a gauntlet across the chops from the word of God. To be thankful at all all times for all things. I once had a, a dear, dear friend who was in authority over me at one point in the army who said the problem with your Christianity is the universals. You can't make that. I've, I've studied philosophy. You can't have these universal statements. Well, Paul hits us with two universals, all the time and all the things. That's what I'm giving thanks for. That's, yes, you can, but it's the result of the filling of the Spirit. He makes me able as he fills me with his word, and that's what I'm designed for. With the result that you give thanks at all times for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God the Father, with the result that you submit one to another in the fear of Christ. And we went through, what does this submit mean? Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Um, Egalitarian theologians, do you know what that is? People that think men and women are interchangeable in terms of their roles. People that do not understand why we'd never have a woman pastor or elder because of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Oh, but I've read Galatians, and Galatians 3.28 says there's no more male or female. And so egalitarians, and some I've I've read and uh, love a lot of their stuff until they get to this topic, but egalitarian theologians who believe men and women are interchangeable will say, see, it's mutual submission right there. But I did some work on this. I did some, some checking on that concern because I'm very interested in this passage and also that, that notion. I mean, if, if I'm supposed to consider my wife in authority over me in the same sense that I'm in authority over her, so it's mutual submission, if that's what the Apostle Paul means, then I have a repentance that I need to make. I need to change my thinking about the authority structure of marriage. And so let's put it on the table. Is that what's going on? It turns out that this word to submit could be as is appropriate to the situation that you find yourself. And this is an exact way to introduce submission into the appropriate structure where he will then go through all the household structures from this point on. And so in other words, I translate it, submit one to another, and in parentheses, I'm saying as would be appropriate to the situation. Here's what I mean. You can't say that husbands and wives are interchangeable in this passage because he's about to say the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. So if I ask the word of God more clarity and definition on this particular verse, I get it in a couple of more verses. And when the word in context tells me that there's a headship and a bodyship, and it's not two heads banging on each other. It's, it's a beautiful organic whole as an or, in the picture of an organism that has functionality in different roles. When you see it that way, uh, you can't do the egalitarian, um, everybody has equal authority thing. And in, in fact, you don't want to because headship submits by self-sacrifice first. Headship takes the bullet. Headship protects. Headship defends. And that's 
on us men. Not that women don't have a responsive role in that. I'm just saying headship is a beautiful thing and we're made for it. But it's a thought thing. It's a challenge. It's not something we necessarily feel like. In fact, I believe male passivity, male passivity, let me apply what we're reading here to our culture, of trying to submit to a wife like she has authority that Paul has not said she has, that God hasn't given, this, is, uh, this accounts for probably what's wrong with our civilization. Because male passivity is a shame. It's a dishonor. It's a disgrace. A man not being a man and being responsible and thoughtful and self-sacrificial in how he leads, but being passive so that uh, let her have the initiative and whatever, that horror um, is a frustration to a man. And so he'll try to anesthetize it. He will divert his, his attention from that uncomfortable situation and say, uh, I, I'll just let it be and let me have another beer. Let me, uh, let me play. Let me watch. Let me do something that takes my mind off this. Let me go check my, um, what, my brackets for, for sports because that matters, you know? Who won the AFC championship game in, uh, in uh, AFC? Well, who cares? I was going to say in 2007. Now, some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I remember. I was there. I saw that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But what we have relegated that to correctly is sports trivia. Because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Here it is, Super Bowl season. And I think it's great to, to find entertainment if you have time for it. But come on, that's not what being a man is about, or a woman. Nothing wrong with it, it's just not what life is about. All right, so, so I do want to introduce household responsibilities with this verse the way I have. I did want to spend a little time talking about this problem of authority and the misunderstandings we have in our civilization. I would refer you back to the benefit of doubt on this topic, the, that series we did a year, year or two ago on uh, how to um, doubt what the world says so that you listen to what God said. The world says men and women are interchangeable. Betty Friedan, the second wave uh, feminism said, oh, 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 you know, the, the problem is that women don't have that self-actualization. So she just took uh, middle class 50s angst and married it to Maslow's satanic hierarchy of needs uh, where you uh, get satisfaction in life without God and that's supposed to be okay. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just saying feminism has never been a blessing to you. It's always been a lie, even when we tried to say, well, it's, it's, uh, it's so you can have you know, self-satisfaction in life. Guess what you find when you go to work? You find Adam's curse of thorns and thistles. Work does not make us happy, but we do need to be productive, creative people because while working for the Lord, as we'll read in the, the code of household through here, we can rejoice because we have a master who is mindful of what we're doing and it really matters to him and he'll reward us according to our work so um, in other words we should not listen to the world on how to live our lives we should listen to the word of God and I promise you today that is a radical crazy thing to say in popular culture what Paul says about the word of God being foolishness to the wisdom of the world is very dramatically real to us if we think about, for example, the role of husband and wife and God's design for marriage. So let's get into our household code. Uh, on Sunday, I provided you um, Sunday morning, first hour, we're doing the same series. So that was number 14. This is number 15. I provided you the Greek comparison between Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 through 4, 1, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through um, really chapter 6, verse 9. I showed you that parallel and I gave it to you in uh, Greek. And tonight, um, I've provided it in English. And that's the right order to do that in. Because um, in Greek, you can, there's no question about what's being exactly said the same way. When you get into English, sometimes they fudge and don't translate things the same way. But in Greek, uh, the same words are the same words. And it's remarkable, the parallelism. I have challenged you to check out Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and see that comparison. And tonight, I'm going to uh, do one step further and actually walk through that challenge with you. So 
Sunday, we saw that Colossians 3, that's your right column, Colossians 3 is almost the same instruction as Ephesians 5. But he doesn't say be filled by the Spirit. It's not the personal agent. It's let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's the content that he uses. It's the content that he uses. And you uh, need to be aware that's spirituality. It's not the Holy Spirit without the Word, and it's not the Word without the Holy Spirit. It's God using the, spirit, the, the, the spiritual information He's inspired in you as you submit yourself to Him for that work. And so, um, not only does He track in 3.16 through 17 with exactly the same topics in sequence, how we talk to each other, how we talk to God, how we give thanks, and then... Um, he doesn't talk about submission in Colossians 3. But if you turn the page, we get into what we call the household code of marriage, children, and labor within your household. So wives, Ephesians 5, through 24, my translation, wives to your own husbands, be submissive just as to the Lord. I've highlighted that because if you go to Colossians 3.18, which is my next slide, it's almost the same sentence. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands just as is fitting in the Lord. He changed it by one word, as is fitting in the Lord. What I conclude from this is not that Paul copied um, uh, Colossians from Ephesians. That would have been the, 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 the chronological sequence. Ephesians was written first. I don't think that a copycat wrote Colossians to sound like Paul, and he was copying Ephesians either. I think Paul gave this message a lot. I think he said this discussion on household for Christian, spirit-filled household a lot. And so, we're hearing it in stereo tonight. Now, Colossians has its own context, its own discussion, Ephesians also, but they're both addressing the spiritual life as Christians should conduct themselves in these authority structures, authority structures. I don't, friends, I don't know how to be a Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and really submits to him without embracing and loving the concept of duly constituted God-delegated authority. It's the great blessing of your life. And, and you know what? You might need to do something drastic about that refrigerator. You might need to say, I have the right to eat whatever I want, but I'm going to restrict that and get some help not eating everything I want so that I can have the life I want to have and I will govern myself that way by getting help with that part of life. See what I mean? So um, authority is a great blessing but it's also a great challenge. So let's, let's, let's go through Ephesians 5. Now, if you look on your chart I made, the Ephesians material is way de- denser. There's a lot more information. Ephesians has a lot more that he says all the way through until you get to the slave code. He doesn't say as much to the slaves in, in Ephesus as he says to those in Colossae. There's a different circumstance. He's probably going to emphasize slavery more for a specific reason, which I have not yet had the opportunity to research why. It's okay. I just, it's an observation. There's more about slavery um, to the Colossians. And boy, is it a doozy when he connects the believer's inheritance to spiritual rewards for service. Inheritance and rewards are united in the slave code in Colossians chapter 3. Wives, your own husbands be submissive just as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, in the same way also the wives to their own husbands and everything. That's my linear, I mean interlinear almost, word for word, almost in the exact sentence or verbal order as the Greek. And so this is, again, it's either a blessing or a curse depending on your worldview. <laughs> also depending on your personal situation. If you have an ogre that, that uh, lives in your house, ladies, keep playing poker. I know you're not going to show me, but if you, if you have an <laughs> he's specking me out. If you have an ogre, or those that aren't married, listen up. <laughs> Please listen up. This is my first talk I give to people that come to me and tell me they want to get married as I try to talk them out of it. If you... <laughs> <laughs> if you are married to an ogre, this is awful sounding. But let's remember, let's remember as we seek to apply the word of God, this is be filled by the spirit with the result that you submit one to another as is appropriate. Submit to one, one to another in the fear of Christ. 
So it's, it's awful in terms of the pragmatic circumstance that this is a cause for your suffering because he's bad. He's not a good leader. He's, he's abrasive or, or even verbally abusive. Okay, you know what abuse means, right? This is a popular thing I, I hear. Abuse means someone commits a personal sin against someone else. Let's put it in theological terms. Abuse is sin. So when you have a pattern and a habit of personal sin towards someone, it would be right to call you a, an abuser. Now own that for a second. Do you have a pattern of personal sin that you bring towards someone else? Gentlemen, are you careful with what you say to your wives? It's always something to check yourself on. It's always something to ask yourself. It's always something to ask her about because you know what? Her sensitivity on your words is different from your sensitivity on your words. And her understanding of what would be appropriate is going to be different from your understanding, isn't it? Aren't most of the fights about how you said it? A lot of the fights are about how you said it. And you say, well, that's not what we're even talking about. We're at the substance of the discussion. She's like, stop yelling at me but I want to talk about what this is about. Well, right now it's about how you're talking because it's damaging. You're overdriving the sensitive equipment. And so that's, that's 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7, if you don't have it memorized, first of all, wrong. Gentlemen, if you don't own 1 Peter 3, 7, you're right now, you're just wrong as can be because I've told you before, please memorize this. And so you should do that. But forget about what I ask. You need to know 1 Peter 3, 7 for you, for her. Because it tells you they're different, man. They're different. Now, th- th- this is a hard thing to apply when a husband is not a loving husband like Jesus is a loving Savior. And when he's not acting like Jesus Christ, it's really hard for a woman to do this. But it doesn't say submit to him if he's like Jesus. It says submit to him because he's in the position that Jesus occupies with the church. He's the head. And so you don't do this in the power of his love. You do this in the power of the Holy Spirit who says Be filled by the Spirit with the result that you submit one to another, wives to your husbands. This is a spiritual life performative responsibility. And it may be that this is where you're called to suffer in your life, to submit to somebody that doesn't deserve it. I believe all wives by this verse are called to submit to someone who doesn't deserve it, especially my wife. Do you hear what I'm saying? Nobody here is Jesus but Jesus. And yet a husband is supposed to take on the role of self-sacrificial loving head that Jesus takes on. I'm supposed to love her like we're going to read, like Christ loved the church. Who does that except Christ perfectly? So we don't deserve this response from our wives, but they are responsible. You ladies are responsible to have it. And you're capable, not because, again, of my performance as, or your husband's performance, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ having put the Holy Spirit in your heart and the Holy Spirit using the word to fill you with this capability. In Colossians chapter 3, wives, be submissive to your own husbands just as is fitting in the Lord. That's all he says in Colossians to wives. Notice it's the same pattern. Wives, submit husbands love. Wives, you submit husbands you love. Now, I've spent a lot of time, probably I looked at the clock. Don't you look at it. I got him. I, I, I looked at the clock. I spent six minutes browbeating the ladies about the responsibility you have to submit to your husband. So let's be fair and spend 12 minutes beating up the men. Because we're going to be biblically proportional, because wives have three verses 22, 23, 24, husbands have verses 25 through 33. Nine verses to the husbands in Ephesians 5 22. 525. Husbands, love your wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her so that he might sanctify her by cleansing through the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself glorious, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that she would be holy and blameless. Okay, so the self-sacrifice of Christ on our behalf was to get us for himself. That's selfless in a way because he had to suffer for us, but it's self-serving in another way. He wants us. He wanted a relationship with us, so he went and got us. That's what he's saying. He, he did this self-sacrifice for us so that he could have us for himself because he couldn't have a relationship with us otherwise. And that's, that's a beautiful thing when you talk about a husband sacrificing his comforts and concerns because he wants her. That's the beauty, that's the romance of this passage when you apply this to a husband and wife. 
Thus, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as also the Lord the church, because we are members of his body from his flesh and from his bones, says the majority of manuscripts. New American Standards based on a, tr- a manuscript tradition that doesn't include from his flesh and from his bones. So it's not um, uh, quoting um, uh, Genesis 2 as much in uh, some of the older manuscripts, but in the majority of them it does. Nevertheless, in verse uh, 25 uh, through 33, he continues, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and he will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So he's quoting, that is Genesis 2.24. That's the outcome of the uh, marriage uh, from its original design in Genesis 2. For this reason, uh, Moses then editorializes. This is why a husband leaves his family and joins to his wife. The two become one flesh. This mystery, Paul then says, is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and about the church. Nevertheless, also you, each one is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to see to it that she fear, phobeo, she fear her husband. If you watch Lifetime TV enough, ladies, you'll fear your husband. Know what I mean? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, I don't have TV. That's good. That's good. Um, what I mean is that um, there is a genre of movies and entertainment that is basically men are evil and they hurt women. And here is a dramatic presentation of that happening in one instance. And then we can, the next, the next uh, episode or next show or whatever will be another instance of a man hurting a woman. And it's, it's horrible, the idea of a man who's stronger than a woman using his strength physically to damage her, to hurt her, to try to constrain her or force her. It's, this is why 1 Peter 3, 7, this is why, I mean, real men want to, uh, want to join the two-by-four committee when they hear about that. You know what that is. This is the, this is the, um, the, <laughs> the illicit vigilantism that says, if someone hurts my sister, they may not go to jail, but they will have trouble walking for a couple of days because we're not going to have someone hurt our, our, our sister. Uh, Jacob's sons did that with, uh, with the men who um, were part of the family that had taken Dinah. And uh, the Lord got them for that. They killed everyone. I'm not saying kill anybody. And I'm not saying do anything either. I'm just saying, men, when we hear of one who's weaker being hurt and oppressed by one who's stronger, we who are also strong want to say, not on our watch. That's not how it should be. And we should be careful to be accountable with one another um, about how we use our strength. I do not know of any physical violence that is happening in your households. I don't know about it. I do have a drone. I've been flying it in most of your windows to see, just to, just to spy on you. Some of you are like, I never thought of that. Well, start thinking about it. Not for me, but it's, I mean, I do not know what is going on in your households. But I tell you this, if you are being beaten or physically assaulted or accosted by your husband, you don't have to put up with that. And you have people. And we, we do not tolerate that at all. And if he's sharp with you and he speaks in an inappropriate way with you and he's unrepentant about that, we don't tolerate that either. And so, um, but, uh, but we <clears throat> do love you and want you to have a good marriage. We want you to be able to do what you're supposed to do. But the, uh, the point is that women are not told here to be afraid of their husbands. They're told to have awe or respect and the word is fear. And so when you know that, that that's what the word of God says, that's what Paul thinks, this is, there are two things people do with it. They say, yes, sir. They say, not my will, but your will be done, God. And they, and they submit to God's word. Or they come up with a reason why this doesn't apply to me. Well, he's nasty, so it doesn't apply. That was Paul's culture. This is what's going on in Ephesus back in those days. So that's the big feminist answer is, uh, well, it's got to be culturally constrained, so it can't be um, uh, what he's saying for us today doesn't apply. The problem with that, the only way, um, the main reason that isn't really a good way to read this on culture is because he goes back to creation. He goes to Genesis 2. He goes to Christ and the church. That's not cultural. That's international. And headship is headship. 
So you, you've got universals again that he's saying by God's design, this is how it's supposed to be. And either you adopt a Christian worldview about it or you try to weasel out of it through um, service to your sin nature. But remember, if he, or Romans 6 is really helpful on this. The one that you submit to is the one you serve. If you submit to the flesh, you're a slave to the flesh, even though you've been freed by Christ. If you submit to Jesus Christ, you're a slave to him, but you're going to serve somebody. I think Bob Dylan said that, didn't he? So everyone's going to serve somebody. I don't know, but that's what I heard. In Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. That's all. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be embittered against them. That's a great summary. Now, notice the difference. He doesn't say go through all this discussion of the theology of husband and wife, like Christ and the church. He does say that there is a sin pattern, a sin tendency that you have to be on guard against. It might have been a problem in Colossae. It might be a problem in Preston. It's in the eternal word of God. Now, think about that. There is a restraint of my own sinful expression, of my own mental attitude sins, where I'm not going to allow myself, despite what she says there does, I'm not going to allow myself to become embittered. Now think about the challenge of that verse. You may be very disappointed with something she thinks says or does, gentlemen, but you have to work on your attitude that you not become embittered. Let's break down love just for a second so we'll make sure we all understand what we're saying. This does not mean feel affection toward Emotional availability and affection is part of what your wife needs, and so it is part of your love, gentlemen, but it's not just affection. It's not just approval, although when she's right, she needs approval. When you're right, you need approval. The, the point of love here is I think and desire what God wants for the other person, and I sacrifice my own interests to help them get it. That's John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What do you need? What does she need, gentlemen? You ask yourself that question, and that's the work that you start to engage in. You don't say, well, do I feel love toward her? That's not what he's talking about. In fact, he's saying, control yourself that you not become embittered when there's a problem. And so this is a great verse for everyone. Well, I'm not bitter toward my wife. Well, think about the way you think about her. Think about the life that you're living. Think about the way you are um, allowing your emotions to drive your choices very often. And, and how um, anger, is anger easy for you or hard? Does it come quickly or does it take time to build because you have a longer fuse? And so um, this love that he's talking about throughout this passage and really throughout the New Testament is a thought game. It's what does that person need? A husband has a special responsibility for love for his wife because it's marital love. It's husband love. That involves philos. It involves familial love. It involves affection. It involves all the things. It involves 1 Corinthians 7 responsibilities to one another's body. This is all part of what it means to provide what the other person needs, as God says. But that's the, that's the rationale. As we think about what it means to love someone, I first go to God and say, what do you want for her? Ladies, what do you want for him? What is your objective for him? What's the big stuff? What's the most important thing? The gospel, eternal life. The judgment seat of Christ. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive recompense for what you've done as a believer equipping someone and being part of an agent in their life, uh, being part of their life as an agent for their good outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. Have you ever thought of loving someone that way? I think about that toward you as your pastor all the time. What do you need? You need not just to have good marriages, although we want you to have good marriages. You don't just need to feel comfortable in your own skin and with your life and be able to look in the mirror and say, "I, I, I like what I see. Okay, that's not enough. These are things that you need, but what you really need what you really need is for Jesus to say, well done. I approve of what you did with the time and the Holy Spirit and the equipment that I gave you. I approve, I love the production that you, you rendered in the, in the spiritual life that I gave you. And that's the judgment seat of Christ for the church. Husbands, love your wives and not be embittered against them is Colossians 3.19. And then back to Ephesians 6. Remember, we're working through our chart. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, takes us from husbands and wives to what God brings forth through them to their children. How do you know that parents have authority over their children? 
Well, because um, Hillary Clinton did not become president, and so we did not sign as a nation the, human, the, the, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of a Child. That's how we know that parents have authority over their children, because our government has not yet told us that we don't have authority over our children, which is, by the way, what the, the, the former first lady really advocated 10 or 15 years ago, that we really need to get into this uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Children that kills homeschooling, that kills the sovereignty of parents for the development and training of their children. It, it, and it's crazy. You know how I know parents have authority over their children? Because the way God made us, we make them. The kids come from us. They don't come from the state. You didn't build that. Well, wait a second. God actually did use us to build that. And that's, if you make it, you decide. You're in authority. God made everything, and by the virtue of creator, we the creatures submit to him. And I'm not saying that parents are gods to their children at all. I'm saying that there is a very clear presentation in Scripture that God has given children to their parents for those parents to train them. Not the state, not the village, not the tribe, not even aunt and uncle. You know what you call it when someone else um, acts as the parents of your kids? Crazy. Loco parentis. <laughs> Actually, that Latin phrase means in the location they're functioning as parents. When the kids go to grandma's house, and you, you know, mom and dad go and, uh, and, uh, and have a weekend and the kids are at grandma's. Grandparents are now in the location as the parents, because the parents are not present. Why do we have that language? Why do we call grandma and grandpa the parents in location? Because we all know instinctively that God made us to where we have the children and then they're ours to make decisions for. And so even when they're not the parents, we call them the parents in location. Just a cultural indicator of what I'm talking about throughout world history. Everybody knows that your kids are your kids, Right? Um, except the UN and godless people who have their better ideas about how to do things than what God said. And let's don't be godless. Let's, uh, let's actually say, God, you have your way. Um, a lot of my concerns about where things are going have to do with my responsibilities and to God and how I train my kids. It's a heavy responsibility. What kind of future are the children going to have? Well, if they walk by the Spirit... They may be enslaved, but they can be successful as free in Christ despite slaved by men. So the real legacy you need to have is the word of God. The spiritual life addresses every aspect of your life. And here, children can be filled by the spirit. What the result? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is how children submit one to another in the fear of Christ. Well, kids can't really have a real spiritual life. Everybody in the household is supposed to be a believer in Christ and then saturated with the word so that they're filled by the spirit as they submit to him with the capability to do this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That means that you consider obedience, children, as worship to God. Not worship to parents, worship to God. That's how children should think about obedience. My parents aren't perfect, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, this wouldn't apply to anyone then, right? You'd have to leave the world. You'd have to have actually God as your physical earthly father, which isn't how it works. No, obey your sinful, broken, selfish, uh, misunderstanding, whatever you want to say, fill in the blank, angsty, snowflake, teenager stuff. Fill it in. He says, obey them, those wicked people in the Lord, because you're learning to respect the delegated position and not necessarily the person. You see, the parents have a responsibility and authority, and so children have a follow-on responsibility as well. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will go well with you, and you may be long-lived, literally long-lived on the earth. So um, Paul quotes the Ten Commandments here and says, this is, this is known. This has been part of God's order. It's, this was before God made a covenant with, with Israel at Mount Sinai. God had parents and children responsibilities. 
Honor your father and mother. You think Noah's kids that covered their faces and backed out of the tent, you think they knew to honor their father and there was a really big dishonor that happened with, with Ham? See, this has been something that's always been part of God's creation order. And, um, and so what I want to say here is that, well, the kids just need a mind. They just need to do the you know, behavior. This is not a behavioral modification protocol, although there's behavior that comes as a result. This is an application of the Holy Spirit having taken up residence in your heart to abide forever. If you have the indwelling of the Spirit, the idea God has is that you'll have the filling of the Spirit, but you're responsible for that. The Bible never says be indwelled by the Spirit. That's why we never sing any songs about the Holy Spirit coming to us. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. However, he may not be expressing himself through you in the moment. That's being spiritual or walking by the Spirit. And here, children who are walking by the Spirit will obey and be empowered to obey their parents. See, it's, you can't divorce the inner spiritual life from the outer practices, even with children and their parents. And that's why in, old, in times past, it was common to hear parents say, I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord, whether they got out the razor strap or whatever. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord and give you some Hebrews chapter 12 discipline or some uh, Proverbs 3 correction. That physical discipline that is necessary to remove foolishness, according to the Proverbs. Well, why are they saying this is for the fear of the Lord? Because it's not about the parent's authority. It's about God's authority. But you've got to make that connection. So I have great fear. Listen, I have great fear in my heart for people that never learn to respect and honor their parents. They never learn obedience to their parents because they're being trained, we're supposed to be trained by that to actually fear God and obey and submit to him. And so if we never learn that it's about the authority, it's not about what I feel like or what I want, but it's about the authority and that this is between me and the Lord to submit to him and how I treat my parents. If we never learn that, then we've missed the greatest training phase of life to live the rest of our lives. And that's the horror. That's the horror of not training our children. It's, and it's uh, as people that are, in, are struggling where they can't. And I think of Richard Wormbrand, obviously. <laughs> Romanian pastor, said no to the communists, locked up for 15 years at one point, and then six or seven more years later, I think, beaten every day, beaten senseless in his feet, um, the, these communist pigs that tortured him every day. And he wrote a book, Torture for Christ, after the liberation of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that. And, um, and his book is basically, you Western Christians with all your freedom, uh, after, after Roosevelt sold us out and gave, gave the whole of Europe, half of Europe to the communists, and, and then I got beaten you know, Wormbrand's book is, y'all need to go with the gospel now because they haven't had it for 70 years. That's torture for Christ. Anyway, um, Wormbrand, um, part of the torture he suffered, probably the greatest torture as, as I think I would imagine. The physical is hard to, it's hard to imagine what he went through physically by being beaten constantly for his faith. Um, but, um, but when his son was taken in to custody and re-educated by the commissars and then brought in front of him to, to renounce Christ and to renounce his father and to be uh, indoctrinated. See, Wormbrand didn't have a choice about the indoctrination of his son. He, he was in prison being beaten. He couldn't stop them. They were comp- they, the state was coming in. See, because the state was the big provider, so it provided truth. And the state came in and took his kid and... Um, told him to hate Jesus, and, and he said, okay. It's a horrible thought. It's un- unthinkable. But see, what we're doing as a civilization today with our freedom is we're willfully giving our children <laughs> to godless indoctrination constantly. And that's, that's pretty much what you're seeing in our dis- disintegrating civilization. In Colossians um, 3.20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Now, I hope you've seen through this little household's walkthrough, everything's in the same order. Paul has this talk that he goes through all the authority structures. If you want to please the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian, 
and your parents' household, obey them. If you want to please the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian in your household, obey your parents and look at it that way. It's a totally different way of looking at life. Those sinful people who are responsible to train you are agents of God, and you really need to trust God to do this. What about honoring our parents after the obedience phase? This is for little children. What about this honor your father and mother? I don't think this ever ends. I don't think, I don't think the responsibility to honor them ever ends, but it changes in its nature because of the nature of household. Ephesians 6, 4 Fathers, do not provoke to anger your children, but bring them up in the discipline and admonition or correction of the Lord. Um, That uh, nuthesia is um, admonition. My Bible says instruction, but it's probably correction of a negative. It's taking someone who's misguided or misunderstands or something and you show them the right way. It's a correction. So you're not provoking them to anger, which is easy to do. It's easy to miss this and think this is about lording it over someone and not actually training them. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great guardrail. I think Paul helps us as husbands and fathers put up. Don't provoke them to anger. It doesn't mean that uh, you tiptoe around their arrogance and never show it to them. It means that you have to understand what you're actually trying to accomplish. And they may get angry about the truth, but you got to keep working. The goal is to move to the discipline and correction, admonition of the Lord. In Colossians 3.21, fathers do not exasperate your children. Different word, but almost the same type of language, so that they will not be discouraged. So in one, they're provoked to anger. In the second, they're not discouraged. This word discouraged, one, one translation says lose heart. New American Standard says lose heart, so they won't lose heart. There's no word for heart here. It's actually a word to be, that means to become discouraged. And so this means that parents have to become caretakers of the, of, of, be careful not to set them up for personal sin through, through anger, to be careful to avoid breaking their spirit breaking them, discouraging them. And so um, very helpful instruction from the Apostle Paul. But how, how can I do this? How can David Roseland, father of five boys, do this and not himself be discouraged or provoke everyone to anger? Um, how can you do this? Well, there's only one way I know, and it's be filled by the Spirit, which is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you so that you're reminded that you have a mission, you have a goal here, it's not to provoke them to anger. It's to, to help them understand the truth. And, uh, and so this is the result of the Spirit's work in our lives when we get it right. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, we move from what we think of as the household to what Paul thinks of as the greater household. It's your business, a business that's run within a household, and it's slaves and masters. And so you want to think of this as like a small business where the management considers the labor folks part of the household. And that's what we're moving toward in our civilization today. I don't know if you notice, but um, who provides medical care now? The, the job. Your job provides your doctor or your health. How is that good together? Well, it sounds like household to me, Right? Like this, like Henry Ford, where you don't know the people working for you and this big factory thing. I mean, it was great for World War II and we need factories, but we're learning that, um, and we learned with the management labor crisis that Ford encountered and that we've been dealing with ever since with the unions. The problem is that we haven't thought of the people working for us as part of our household. We haven't thought of them as those for whom we're providing um, in some sense, some, providing something, structure, uh, direction. Um, and, uh, and so I think that would solve a lot of the management labor disputes. I think, I think unions would, would become less necessary, or I shouldn't say necessary, less popular if, uh, if people really um, felt like they were part of the organization. Um, I hate to use Howard Schultz as an illustration of anything, <laughs> for lots of reasons, but, um, 
People who are looking for part-time work will go to Starbucks before somewhere else if they can get on. If they can get a job at Starbucks, it's way better than Burger King or, or whatever because the benefits and the pay are higher. They take care of their people better. So it's a better gig for part-time work. And um, that's one take on it. Also, the smell. If you, live, if you work there, you smell like coffee all the time. It's good. But anyway, slaves. Slaves obey your lords according to the flesh. Now, this is the big surprise for me because I've read in English so much that I've always read slaves obey your masters. But the word here is kurioi, your lords, which means master. But let's be consistent and translate it consistently through just so we can get a flavor of what Paul is doing as he speaks Greek here. Slaves, obey your lords according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of your hearts just as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your soul. It doesn't say your heart, it says your soul. With good will serving as unto the Lord. That would be capital Lord for us, but it's kurios again, as unto the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So I've got to go make the, the, the Lord's bed. I've got to go make the master's bed because oh, it's my job and that's what they told me to do. So I go up there and make his bed. What benefit is that to me? Paul says, whatever you do for the Lord, you get back. So the boss says, go out and um, butcher those deer I just killed. I don't want to do it. Make sure you don't get any hair in the meat. Let's pick a fun task. Well, a fun outcome that's a, a, an odious task. Go out there and take care of that. I had the good time hunting. Now you do the hard work afterwards. <sighs> what do I get? I don't ever get, get any venison. Here I am processing this meat for the, for the master. Everything you do for the Lord, you get back. So you could have had venison if you were the landowner, if you were the master and who, who uh, had the right to tell you this is your job, you do it. If you were him, you could have had venison today. You could have had some backstrap and, um, and, and uh, some chicken fried backstrap with uh, some homemade gravy and mashed potatoes would have been fantastic. You could have done that and enjoyed that for now. And it, if you understand what I'm talking about and you do it right with some garlic and cayenne pepper, it's wonderful. Um, if you don't, it could be awful. But, um, but the slave who did what he did for the Lord in preparing this meal for the boss gets eternal reward for that labor that he did. It's a one-to-one in this passage. Did you see that? Whatever you do, whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So guess what happens, Onesimus, if you're a Christian who finds yourself enslaved which has been a real common experience in church history, especially in the Roman Empire. If you're a Christian who finds yourself enslaved, what do you do? Run, run with the ball. I mean, not, I don't mean run away. I mean, you run with the ball. They say, hey, go up and make the bed. You say, Lord, I'm gonna go make the bed for you. And you do it with faith, expecting to receive back. What did, uh, what did those um, great liberators, the early 20th century say? What was, I believe it was Lenin or Marx. Maybe it was Marx. I know, I hate their theology too. Um, Mark said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Why? Because you'll stay enslaved and not revolt against your master if you believe you'll receive reward from Christ at the end. That's what he's saying. In other words, he nailed it. This does, this does help us cope with oppression. Now, for me teaching this and saying this applies to us, wherever we find ourselves in a management labor situation, I will be called by liberation theologians a perpetuator of the system that oppresses people. No, I'm just a realist that everyone who, has, who draws breath is a broken sinner who acts in self-interest, and um, unless the Holy Spirit does a change, um, that's not really attenuated. So whatever system you're in, you're going to have to have the filling of the Spirit to equip you to deal with oppression. In Colossians 3, through 25, we have more on slaves. Slaves obey in all things the according to the flesh lords. I know, it's not good English, but that's what it says in Greek. The according to the flesh lords. Not with eye service as men pleasers, we've heard that before, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and everything whatsoever you do, from the soul do it as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Their spiritual rewards are connected to Christian inheritance, which makes me think that some things in our inheritance are on reserve and conditional, and some things are stated to be unconditional, like the, we have the Holy Spirit now and so forth. 
For it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, but unrighteous ones will receive the consequences of the wrongdoing, and that is without partiality. So a lot more on slavery, righteous and unrighteous, and be careful how you serve and expect to receive this recompense. But I want you to see that in both passages, the slave receives back what he does. He receives it back. And so that's a faith claim. It's a promise from the word of God. You trust God and you don't listen to the satanic lie of alternative worldviews that say you should get what you can get for you now. Whatever you do, wherever you find yourself, be a Joseph. If you're enslaved, be awesome in your, in your labor. If you find yourself the prime minister of Egypt, save life. However you find yourself, serve the Lord and trust him. Ephesians 6, 9, lords, do the same to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both your and their Lord is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So Ephesians 6, 8 is, is about the slaves and their, um, their service to the Lord. And so Paul says this is true for masters as well. And in Colossians 4, 1, lords, hold forth justice and fairness to the slaves, knowing that also you have a Lord in heaven. These are echoes. They're almost the same thing. They're just not quite exactly stated the same way, but they're in the same sequence. What's the big conclusion? I've already given it to you, but down to how you work in your business, it's all supposed to be under this aegis of the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And the central thing there is that I want to serve Jesus. He empowers me as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, as a master, as a slave, as a boss, as a worker. He empowers me to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the capacity in which I find myself. And yes, every system is broken, but the Holy Spirit isn't. So you're in the arena. Whatever arena you find yourself, this is directly, directly applicable. That's the Christian spiritual life as it affects the household. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word and for this, this echo through Colossians and Ephesians where we see um, where we find ourselves, the Spirit of God can equip us to be pleasing to you for it, is, for it is you, for it is your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we serve. Help us do it well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.